Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of The Renowned Podcast. We're your co-hosts, Allison Hager. And Mark Schultz. For anyone joining us for the first time, Renowned is a podcast for the curious. We dust off the commonplace to look for new relevance as we challenge ourselves to do critical thinking about the objects that surround us, how they echo humanity's past, reflect the present, or foreshadow the future. So with that, Mark, do you want to remind everyone what this episode's noun is? Sure. The noun is MAP. M-A-P. MAP. Short and sweet. But rich, complicated. I will I say sort of. ri- rich is the exact word I would use. I, I mentioned this before we turned on the recording. I My brain hurts this, this week, actually. Uh, so this should be interesting. Um, so should we just jump right in and roll our die? Let's do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, what'd you six. get? Three. Ooh, so it is up to you. All right. So uh, my just the hits. If you can give me 15 seconds, let me know. Yeah. One, two, three, go. Maps have been an essential tool throughout history for humans to document and understand not only the world, but ourselves. And in that lies the power and perhaps the danger of drawing borders. Nice. You have four, three and a half seconds left, basically. Great. Well done. I think I'm going to struggle with mine this week, so I may speak a little quickly. Okay. Let me know Uh, when I'm good to go. Absolutely. Three, two, one, hit it. With his marine clocks, John Harrison tested the waters of space-time. He succeeded against all odds in using the fourth, temporal, dimension to link points on the three-dimensional globe. He wrested the world's whereabouts from the stars and locked the secret in a pocket watch. Okay. You only cut off pocket watch. I think I just... You are so good. Oh, yeah. I can see why your brain's hurting. Mine's hurting from your just the hits. (laughs) I'm not sure I even followed what you just said. No, no. (laughs) No, I think it's going to be complicated. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I won't make you do it again. But uh, yeah, if if I was an audience yeah. member, I'd be like, I'm going to listen to that again because what? Uh, and that's not a judgment on how you wrote it. I just think it's a complex. complex no, absolutely. And it was a quote. It was actually a quote. I didn't even write that. But okay. um, it, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, nice. I have a feeling that mine's going to be like the survey class on like some basics and then yours is going to like really go there. So that's, that's going to be a good one to punch for all our listeners today. I think maybe. I think there's some really um, uplifting stuff in mine as well. So it's not just all like brain hurty stuff. In fact, I, I I'm, I'm kind of dumbing it down. So, uh, okay. Mark. Hey, All right. into the deep. Will, into the deep. And so, of course, uh, audience, you know me by now. Uh, before the rabbit hole, I like to do my little, uh, I don't know, etymology corner or something. Uh, so here's a, a definition in some etymology. So basically, map comes to us from way back from Latin mappa, M-A-P-P-A. Pretty straightforward. And that actually means cloth. So then that over time became mapamundi, mundi being world. So it basically meant a world cloth was an expression um, for basically maps that were of the known space and world at the time. So 
That moved into French later, Mapmonde, actually all one word, M-A-P-P-E, instead of Mappa, Map with an E, and then Monde, of course, anyone who knows some French, uh, that is the word for world in French. So Mundi uh, would have been in the Latin, Monde in the French. That then moved into Old English as Mapmonde. Uh, if, if I'm saying that right, M-A-P-E, they dropped one of the P's, uh, and then M-O-U-N-D-E, and that was also one word. So over time, we shorten map mund, I guess, uh, into map. We dropped the the moon, the, the world part of, off of it, and we were and we are left, I'm sorry, with map. So that I think in itself is interesting, but also you can therefore also think of the similarity with the word napkin, because technically mappa might mean cloth or uh, a napkin. And where that kind of comes from is napkin, you can break into two pieces, nap and then kin. So nap, of course, very similar to map. Uh, and kin actually is a diminutive ending, right? Like a cute little ending for uh, in English that therefore took nap and made it cute and small. So little cloth. So when we use a napkin, yeah. you're using a little cloth. Uh, you can think of munchkin, uh, the expression daddykins, like things like that. Like we had- I know, but now I'm thinking things. mapkin, like a little baby map, and I'm loving it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> totally. I'm surprised we don't have like napkin actually. Um, so that is related. Uh, and then uh, a little bit of another side note, I went down some smaller rabbit holes here. In if kin is a diminutive suffix uh, in English, there is a French diminutive, eron, E-R-O-N, which took mappa through to naperon, naperon, uh, became an English word, apron, apron, apron. So therefore, it's kind of like, and I can't verify this, but that would almost mean like a little tablecloth that you would wear, actually, right? Instead of on the table, it's on you. Uh, so I thought that was like a, a cute way to tie together map and napkin and apron and all these things that were using a mix of um, of cloth, but then how cute and small it was or in size, et cetera. Mark, you're all over the map with your etymology today. Oh, boom. I love mm -hmm. it. Uh, and then one other thing, right? If uh, as, as I was going through this, I actually came back and did some etymology a last little bit after I had done a lot of my research. If you're curious where cartography comes from, right? If you're thinking map and then you're like, well, cartography is actually the more scientific sort of right. map drawing and map making. If you were to then think of the etymology, someone who uh, might not have done some of the research would think, well, how are we cartography? How are we the graph graphy? might make sense, right? It's the the drawing of something, but carts, why are we drawing wagons? Like, it would be like, where is that coming from? So cart uh, for us is actually related to the French carte, C-A-R-T-E, which actually means several things. It means map, it means card, uh, it means ticket, it means menu. It's, it's basically a sheet of paper. And so carte became card, instead of a T, became a D in English. And that is largely unexplained, apparently. Uh, in some of my research on this, uh, linguists don't know why that happened. But they're, they're both stop plosives. They're, they're one's just unvoiced and one's voiced. Um, so I think that kind of makes sense that uh, English mm. swapped, swapped it out at one point. Um, but for some reason, for map making, we maintained the T for cartography and didn't switch it to a 
D. Otherwise, we could have ended up with cardography, really. But maybe because the T goes into the ography a little bit better, we have cartography instead of cardography. Totally a rabbit hole, but yeah, it was kind of fun to to nerd out with with that. So there's a little background on the words uh, that we're, we're talking about dealing with today. All right, transitioning into trivia. Trivia one, Allison will uh, answer, but audience, please give a thought to what you think your answers are. What ancient civilization is credited with creating the first known maps? Is it A, Mesopotamians? B, Egyptians, C, the Greeks, or D, the Romans? Mesopotamians. You are correct. It is Mesopotamians. Um, and I'm actually, usually I give a little bit of the context and explanation, but part of my rabbit hole will actually go there. So let's just dive in a little bit. So maps have been an essential part of human civilization since ancient times, for example, Mesopotamia. And that early evidence of the first known map uh, being created by the Babylonians, but also the Egyptians and Greek, but Babylonians in Mesopotamia sort of beat out the Egyptians and the Greeks by a little bit of time. So these maps were very simple representations of the world around them and often were used for religious or, or cultural purposes. So over time, maps have been used in sort of three main areas. One, to understand geography, two, to explore and navigate the world, and three, to create boundaries. Now, as I started to go through this research, if you're anything like me, and I'm not assuming that everybody is or isn't, but I always sort of lumped those three things together, I think, in sort of one big geographical, it's a map. It's, I, I don't know, but the more that those three things, I, I've, I'm going to give some examples of how we've used maps in each of those. I do think you can draw a bit more of a delineation between <laughs> a border between um, the three, right? Geographical and understanding what the geography, the physical nature of, of things are, but then how to use the map to explore and navigate the world, more of a functional use of moving yourself in that space. And then uh, three, creating boundaries um, and what that can mean sort of geopolitically and socially unfortunately, and sometimes fortunately. This is great because the beginning of my rabbit hole was, was some of the stuff, which is great because now I don't have to do it. But one thing on the, so I, I believe that map is called the Imago Mundi, right? Image of the world, the Babylonian map. We call it the Babylonian map of the world, but its original name was the Imago oh, Mundi. That I did not have. So great. Excellent. Um, I'm glad you have but that. You, you mentioned it's on a stone, like on a stone tablet. Um, you can see it in the British Museum in London, uh, but it also has some text on it uh, carved into it in cuneiform, which I thought was a nice callback to our writing episodes. So no, that is absolutely, that in there. that's perfect because I'm going to discuss very briefly what some of that writing talks about, but not deeply. Oh, cool. Not yeah. deeply at all. No, excellent. Excellent. Uh, and I'm glad that you have uh, a more formal and probably more well-known name for it. Uh, my research just said a clay tablet, like you said, and it's surrounded by what they called the bitter river. Um, yes, or salt or those, yeah, salt something. Yeah, it's really interesting the way they like Right, it's interesting that the you know ocean and, and that word, and I won't get into that, audience, I'll spare you that. Uh, but right, they, they just considered it a, a very 
all-encompassing river still. They were thinking in terms of that and yeah. why it was a bitter versus, yeah. And I think uh, the fresh. regions outside, oh, I don't, I, go ahead. I don't want to take away oh, from sure, anything. Oh, sure, sure. No, 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 no. Uh, please jump in with uh, Well, it just was with your bitter, um, your bitter river piece, because I guess it's, you know, Babylonia is in the middle, Babylon's in the middle, of course, because these are the people doing it. And then there's like eight regions shown around them, yes. like kind of the extent of the world, yep. but they called them islands. Uh, it's just interesting, right? Because they knew, like, it could have been metaphorical. Or it could have been like they thought they were islands because the river was right. Anyway, it's all right. fascinating. Yep. So tell yep. us more. No, absolutely. Uh, okay. So this map that we're talking about, everyone, uh, I'm going to give some examples. So this would be, for me, uh, an understanding of understanding geography, one of the first of three right uses of maps that we've used. So to understand geography, the first recorded map is this depiction Allison and I have been talking about, Babylonian, dating from about 600 BCE in, from Mesopotamia. and as we've been saying, it's a clay tablet, uh, basically sh showing the world as a disc surrounded by this bitter river. And it had Babylon marked as a rectangle at the end of the Euphrates River that was um, running through this, this map. So a couple things that are talked about, I believe, in the cuneiform that, that Allison mentioned, et cetera, are one is the movement of the sun described as rising in the east, crossing the heavens, and then setting in the west, but actually kind of going under into the underworld. Uh, I think the way that it's described right there, picturing again about a flat earth, uh, and it's going you know, a certain way east to west and then underneath <laughs> and then back up. So into the underworld and then back, you know, topside, so to speak. Uh, the tablet features, yes, as uh, Allison mentioned, eight outlying regions uh, with a note to the distance to each, which I didn't uh, look up exactly what it is. I believe that it's pronounced Beru, a B-E-R-U, being six or seven Beru. So I don't know what that is, but it was certainly a measure of some kind of distance. Uh, and the text on the tablet describes the some of the inhabitants of the areas beyond the earth um, on these islands that Allison mentioned, uh, whether divine, human, animal, or monstrous. Uh, references to important figures in Mesopotamian myth and history. Um, uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but U-T, Ut, and then I believe it's Napashtim, N-A-P-I-S-H-T-I-M, Napashtim, uh, which is an, a Noah figure. And I'm going to pause there just as a little aside. Anyone who's a regular listener knows that I love to critique organized religion in many ways. And I think there are many certainly in the United States that still unfortunately take the writing in the Christian Bible as literal truth versus a collection of mythologies and stories that might give some guidance in certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the Noah and the Ark story, it was news to me, but again, not a surprise to me that this actually far predated the, the, the story of the flood uh, from from the Bible, and it came, you know, out in my research that many cultures around the world have had flood mythologies. Yeah. It may or may not tie to uh, climate change after the uh, melting of the the the, um, the last ice age and a lot of of water. So therefore, around the world, there were these <laughs> obviously a lot of water. Therefore, a lot of flood mythologies and what that meant as the society struggled with it. So. Uh, that was a story of a character named Ut uh, Napishtim or Napashtim, um, who was tasked by the god Enki, I believe, to basically 
build an ark uh, and and do everything that we know of from the Christian story of, of Noah and the ark. I digress, but a lot of things are borrowed. A lot of things are not unique to uh, to, the, to the Bible. Uh, so also others are uh, Sargon and Nurdagan or Nurdagan, perhaps. They were rulers, famous rulers at the time, um, and suggest that they may have all been imagined as inhabiting these regions on the tablet. They, they were these figures that were probably out there along with these other humans and animals or monstrous beings in these, you know, eight areas around the outside. So that's one example of, uh, of you know, one of the first known pieces and using it to understand some geography. But I think not just geography, it's probably understanding sort of the metaphysical and religious as well. Yeah. Okay. Which I think you hit on, you said it was such a rich topic and I was like, yes, my brain hurts. And it is like that too. Like you just talking about one map and you've already been talking about, like they used it to like geolocate their own place on the known world. They also then like were calculating distances and thinking about astronomy um and and how that tied in and then there was also this huge layer of mythology not only about the sun going down right to wherever it goes the underworld and coming back up but also the mythology around some of those islands um and what they perceived to happen there so right away you just go down you have so many layers it's really hard to parse them yeah yeah and for me i hadn't thought of it until you just mentioned that that had they tried to map stars and planets we're basically back where we started with our orbit conversation yes. from another civilization that was taking it and trying to represent that and how it started the whole, Yeah, you know. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about our reference. old friend Galileo. When we get oh, to five amazing. Parts. So excellent, another, excellent. Well, another callback. <laughs> I want to hold that up because I love me some Galileo. Okay. So the second uh, use of maps, exploring and navigating the world. So I wanted to find, you know, and educate myself on an example of that. And it's funny when I looked through some of the classic uh, expeditions, naval expeditions, I wanted to force myself not to focus on one of the ones that I think I would have covered in our very Western focused uh, education. Mm, cool. So Magellan and the others, I was like, hmm, something else. So I learned about a gentleman named Zheng Huan, I believe it's uh, Z-H-E-N-G, but that's pronounced Zheng. And H-E is the last name, uh, and that is Huan. And he was a Chinese explorer and admiral in the early 15th century. So he led, uh, he actually went a little bit into his background. He was a Muslim of Muslim uh, descent within the Yunnan mm -hmm. province, I believe. Uh, so over time, though, as that was conquered and brought into, I believe, the Ming dynasty in China, uh, he actually was a eunuch and then brought in to serve as an admiral uh, and kind of through the, the grew up in the naval system, but became one of their most famous uh, naval explorers. So he played a significant role in expanding China's trade networks and diplomatic relationships with other countries. So he introduced new shipbuilding and navigation technologies to China, uh, his, and his legacy has been continued and celebrated in China and beyond from that. Um, his expeditions uh, expanded China's trade networks, um, advancements in, as I mentioned, a lot of the technologies, and explored and mapped new areas beyond China. Um, sort of expanding their their overall knowledge of the world. Uh, he actually went to India on a hundred or two, one or two hundred years before 
the Portuguese came around Africa to India. So he came the other way and, and was there first, basically, oh. um, which I think was, was kind of interesting. Uh, and so his legacy also has inspired a lot of later explorers and adventurers um, from China and, and that area. So I thought that was cool uh, in terms of, you know, somebody right. who was active and and a lot of the maps, I didn't go into specifically the maps he was using. I wanted to cover some other things we'll get to in a second. But yeah, it, he really furthered a lot of the, the known world for China and therefore maps and representations of that. Very cool. And I, I love that you did, you know, the way you prefaced it, that, you know, all of us here in the U.S. and social studies, I don't know if it's still called that, right? Uh, right? We did. Totally, we learned totally. about Christopher Columbus and Magellan and Captain Cook and, right, all these folks. So we, that is our our grounding, right, when we learn about the explorers and kind of early maps and all that stuff. So I love that you went to uh, a culture that we unfortunately weren't as educated about when we were younger. Well yeah, I, I think. You know, and, and not, not to risk, I always think on our, our podcast, it's one thing I love about our show is I feel like when I talk about things that I'm learning, I feel a little bit vulnerable to show Works. things that I don't know, right? Because uh, I think there'll be a lot of people be like, how does how does Mark not know that? Um, <laughs> Stop it. You know, and, you know, honestly, a lot, I'm sure there'll be things where you're like, what? Um, but for me, I to your point, Allison, I, I think it would do a lot of good for young Americans growing up to not only be exposed to the overall story that I just mentioned, but even the details, because when I hooked in to say, oh, wait a minute, he's a Muslim Chinese. Yeah. It's just, that and I know that there are many of them, I would assume, but like, it's not what you picture when you read our news and we are conditioned to think of China a certain way, especially in current communist China. Like, you know what I mean? It's very different than reading about the story and realizing the mix of cultures from that whole area. I just think it's, yeah. Well, this is part of the reason we do this, right? It's like we're learning and we're going down one avenue to learn more about one particular noun, find a, a threadway, and then we end up learning all this other yeah. amazing stuff. So. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Makes us better. Uh, so moving to trivia question number two. Uh-oh. What is the name of the system used by the United States to identify and locate points on the Earth's surface? Is it A, the Geographic Information System, GIS? Is it B, the Universal Transverse Mercator, UTM? Is it C, Global Positioning Systems, GPS? Or is it D, Latitude and Longitude System? Well, I see, okay. Because honestly- <laughs> This is tricky a little bit, because. It Sorry, is because it could honestly be any of the so so the beginning of the question was the official what the system. This, what is the name of the system used by the United States to identify and locate points on the Earth's surface? I mean, it's gonna have. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to go with um. Uh, what was the um. Second, uh, not latitude and longitude, which I'm going to be talking a lot about. Um, <laughs> not just not GPS, the Mercator one, universal, universal, universal Mercator, UTM. Yeah. Um, you're no. going to be bad. It is D, latitude and longitude, but I believe the universal <laughs> Mercator probably was established 
by the latitude longitude yes which i am going to be talking about right, and right. this is oh, why it was killing perfect. me because latitude and longitude okay. isn't just used by the u.s latitude and longitude is the gold standard it is what allowed us right. to locate places on earth right. I'm and mad that might now. be that i know you're gonna be mad that is a tricky way to ask it because it is not just the united states it is used exactly. by the united states but it's used by a lot of places Exactly. But yes, that's why I'm like, it can't just be latitude, longitude. It has to be one of the steps that came later, which Mercator like made a huge, made huge improvements to the grids. Which I will oh, I'm okay, super, I'm super glad up. you're going there because so I did not. And I saw, of course, hints of it. Yay. No, I'm excited about yours. Okay. So uh, the concept of latitude was developed by the ancient Greeks, while the concept of longitude was developed by Greeks, Romans, and Chinese, actually. Um all had similar approaches to it. So over time, various methods were developed to determine longitude, but they were not widely adopted until the invention of more accurate timekeeping devices in the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, a modern system was used using decimal degrees, what we kind of know now for latitude and longitude, and it was standardized. That's as deep as I went, but it sounds like you're going there. No, that's probably that is like actually the perfect layup for what I'm going to be talking about. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, this, this is, I think it's coming true when I thought I'm going to do like the survey class and then you're going to like go deeper. And <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm doing 101. You're doing 102. Let's say that. 201. <laughs> two, 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 I don't know. I don't remember college. It was a million years ago. No, you have a 101 um, class and then your next year you take a 201 class, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. Um, all right. And then the last thing, creating boundaries. So... On this one, you take this geopolitical and we take a bit of a, it's definitely a darker sort of uh, angle to, to, to a degree. Uh, depends on how you look at it, I guess. Uh, so the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I uh, dissolved the German, Austrio, uh, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman empires and created new nation states in their place. I know that is a broad thing that is sort of well-known, but um, for if we're thinking really specifically in remaking maps and what that can do politically, when instead of you're describing something that is physically out there, you are forcing <laughs> territories to change between nations and management of nations and power struggles and things like that. Um, you know, for example, it redrew the map of Europe and reduced the size of Germany as a penalty, basically, for the war. Therefore, Germany lost territory to France and to Poland. Uh, new political boundaries were established. The treaty was intended to prevent Germany really from regaining its pre-war strength and to basically weaken its influence. So right here, you see maps wielded in a way that is not reactive to things that pre-exist out in the world, but uh, you can look at it as a, a real proactive tool kind of a weaponized way of, yep. of you know affecting people and uh so the, the treaty also established new borders in eastern europe creating new states at the time such as czechoslovakia and yugoslavia the treaty's creation of new political boundaries between nations helped shape the geopolitical landscape of the 20th century and led to many of the conflicts and tensions that followed thereafter uh, and that, again, in my survey class, sort of, I don't go deeper, that have a massive topic, of course, that has, you know, and that was World War One. If you talk about World War Two, you can really go there with uh, everything from Israel to uh, to a lot of other um, yeah. very deep um, and, and trigger button topics for a lot of people. For sure. Uh, all right. So then I, I believe this is my last topic. Everyone will be happy to hear. Uh, they, I go a bit more into the modern era and some technology here. So in the modern era, maps have become even more sophisticated with the use of technology such as GPS and satellite imagery. 
Maps are now created using a geographic information systems, GIS, and are used for a wide range of purposes, including urban planning, disaster response, and scientific research. So I just want to touch on a bit of a difference. I mentioned two things there. GPS, which I think we're all probably familiar with because you know that your phone yep. and mm -hmm. Google Maps and so on is using GPS systems uh, basically every day for um, you know billions of people. So GPS, global positioning. GIS, and if you missed it in what I just said, is geographic information systems. So just to compare and contrast those two things briefly. GPS, you know, when you open Apple Maps or Google Maps and using the directions button and you're, yes, you're saying phone, yes, you share my location, et cetera, what that is doing when you share your location. It's a satellite-based navigation system that determines the user, right? If you're out there on the street looking for Burger King, I don't know, it's the first thing I thought of, must be hungry, uh, and you're, uh, the user's precise location, um, you're looking for your location on the Earth's surface, it uses a process called trilateration. Focus on the three there in a second. It uses uh, the device's received signals from three nearby tower locations, uh, which includes data in this signal, right? Your, your phone is receiving three signals from three different directions, and that signal includes data on the tower's distance to the device. So using those three distances, again, the distances to each of those towers from the device, it's used, those distances are used as radii. Um, of circles, three circles from the tower. And then the device, the GPS system, either the device itself or the program, the platform that it's running, it uses uh, mathematical equations to find the device's X and Y value. So picture yourself, if you're standing on the street, if you're on a grid system, just picture, right? The grid's going out to your right and left and up and down behind you. Uh, you wanna find the X and Y on this, this map, right? This grid. It's using mathematical equations that find where those radii overlap, right? Where the, the lines of these three circles would all come together to pinpoint where you are. Now, why do you need three and not two? If, if you're wondering why trilateral, not bilateral. If you had two circles, picture if you're everyone's familiar with a Venn diagram, I know that's three, but take one of them out of there. Just two circles that are overlapping you'll know that basically up top and down below, you'll have two intersections. So if you only have two, say two towers, we were only sending a signal to your phone, you could be in one of two places, right? And that's not really gonna be helpful. It's not gonna be super accurate. So you need a third tower, a third triangle to really pinpoint you specifically. Now, modern GPS systems, as they get better and better, are starting to move to what's called multilateral instead of trilateral. So you have more than three towers. You've got four, five, six more. Um, and that is just using the same approach, the same where, where do all these circles with their radii uh, you know, overlap to find you. And it is more and more specific to where you are. So that's GPS. Uh, GIS, on the other hand, right? That is more of an overall system for managing, analyzing, and visualizing geospatial data. Think of that as more of a massive database that's taking in a lot of data of different types and how you're using it to, um, to basically query it, to answer what you need from the GIS system to come up with um, a solution to whatever information you're, you're, you're trying to get at. Um, where, where GPS might provide location data into a GIS system, right? It might be a quote unquote, a slave, not in a, it's not a PC term now, but uh, like in a system where something is a servant to something larger, right? It's, it's 
purpose would be to send data into a larger GIS platform and system uh, to incorporate it into this geospatial database. GPS can be used uh, to collect the location data and then import it into the system to create maps, et cetera, et cetera. So that basically is happening when you are seeing, for example, on Google Maps, you're not just getting this plain X, Y grid of where you are, which means nothing to you. You're basically seeing where you're standing on a street. And that street could have overlays of everything from satellite imagery to, I don't know, probably radar weather, whatever you want on yeah. all these things. And all you can of those do, they use it in wildlife management. Like they do, oh, yeah. well, of course they do topography. And then they also do like types of ground cover, types of flora, like the, the, the endless, endless layers that you, like you're saying that you, you have this like layered database that you can dive Excellent. in, which gets really really interesting and and uh, yeah and all of that is the gis part of the it's the broader yeah. right combination of all the, the the data that's putting together so uh, together gps and gis can be used to create powerful geospatial solutions everything else and perfectly just uh talked about um yeah i mean that's it i think I, my last note here was where you are on a map visually not just the coordinates which we talked about right. so to end my section with one last bit of one last trivia question Oh, thought <laughs> I was free and clear. <laughs> Always three. Uh, I'm still angry about the last one. What new technology is being developed that may revolutionize, revolutionize, excuse me, the way we create maps and involves using lasers to create detailed 3D representations of the Earth's surface? Is it A, quantum computing, B, augmented reality, C, LIDAR, D, neural networks? I don't know. LIDAR. It is LIDAR. Yep. I mean, just because L, laser, you know, and I nope. knew it wasn't. Yeah, that's, that's that totally it. So LIDAR, <laughs> LIDAR stands for light detection and raging. So the L-I is light detection and raging and ranging. Um, as <laughs> not raging. To, it's not uh, raging. Um, as opposed to radar, if anybody, everyone knows what radar is, but we may have forgotten over time what those words actually stand for. So if LIDAR stands for light detection and ranging radar is Ooh, radio, radio detection exactly. I, I wanted to get something right <laughs> <laughs> that's it radio detection and ranging so you can think of lidar as an upgrade to instead of using radio waves you're now using laser and, and light data uh, and being very very highly accurate to um yeah well my notes here right remote sensing technology is used to create these really highly accurate 3d maps so lidar works by sending out pulses of laser light they bounce off objects from quite a distance and, and return to a sensor so this is usually a plane or a drone or some other airborne machine or device that is flying over uh location so allison mentioned in, in her example of maps using topography or it could be anything. It could be a, a plantation or like tree coverage or something like that. Um, so by measuring the time it takes for the laser to return to the sensor and analyzing the intensity of the returned signal, probably everything from like light frequencies and everything else, I'm assuming, yeah. uh, LIDAR can create really, really accurate maps. So LIDAR is used in a variety of applications, uh, mapping terrain, monitoring changes in the environment, and creating detailed 3D models of buildings and other structures. So as you start to see um, Google Maps, for example, get pretty accurate, I think a bit more accurate with things um, in terms of building structures, that's probably LiDAR as well. All right, 
that very is going cool. On. I loved it. This worked out so well. Like you said, like this was such a great survey. And I love that you touched on so many facets of the map world. Um, so I will, as Mark said, take it to a much more narrow place. He doesn't know, except for what I've told him to, that all of you have heard what I'm going to talk about. But uh, you also mentioned a lot that allows me to cut off the beginning of my going uh, into the I deep. I apologize, which is, but maybe. No, don't. It's perfect. It's fantastic. Um, so I will skip ahead here. So so Mark talked about all, all, all these uses for maps. And of course, the very first one was just like understanding where we were on the earth and how to get from maybe where we were to a point we wanted to go to. And if you think about the Imago Mundi, you know, that's they, they were showing the world as they knew it and showing distances if I wanted to go to this region or that region. So the, the most basic kind of uh, map, you know, need. Um, so as map making developed, you know, as humans kind of understanding of the extent of, of the world changed, uh, things had to develop with that. And so to that end, and Mark, you probably, um, read about a lot of this stuff and just didn't have time to fit it all in in your survey research here. But in 3 BCE, there was a Greek writer, geographer, astronomer, of course, um, named um, Eratosthenes. To say that slowly because I have to like look at it really long time to get it right in my head. He made maps. He made the first maps that we're aware of, at least, with irregularly spaced grid lines. These are called parallels and meridians. And the parallels are the latitudes and the meridians are the uh, longitudes. So Mark mentioned this. This is the standard system for being able to precisely pinpoint a spot on earth. Um, most of you know this. I am going to say this because reading about latitude and longitude and trying to understand it almost broke my brain. So I like I've always understood of course generally what they are but I didn't really understand the calculations required and it hurts. So so just to to like frame this in its most basic sense. Latitude is the distance north or south on the globe from a reference line and that reference line needs to run per perpendicular to earth's axis. Um longitude runs the other way, right? It runs from pole to pole and together they create this grid system theoretically using a global standard. So in about five centuries later, um, Ptolemy, who was an Egyptian astronomer of Greek descent, he built on Aristophanes' work and he created a map of the world as it was then known to the, to the um, Roman Empire. And, and he modified the grid system. He used curved lines of latitude, Right. So he did that because he wanted to reduce distortions, because as we all know, it's a curved earth. It's a flat piece of paper. There are always distortions in maps. That could be a whole other episode talking about the different maps and how they skew the representation of things on Earth. But See orbit. Episode one. <laughs> so he he tried to, to account for this by doing curved latitude lines. And he also used the equator. Right. We all know about the equator, but it's an imaginary line. It's just an imaginary line on Earth, equidistant between the poles, right? Equidistant from each pole um, as a reference. So for the meridians or the longitude to create a, a, a standard, he used the fortunate islands as the reference point. We know them more commonly as the Canary Islands. So um, that at the point, that point in history, that was the westernmost known point of the world. So he went as far west as he could know and said, all right, let's just say this is our starting point that we'll calculate everything from. 
So helpful as all of this was in terms of now the world's growing, people want to understand how to very specifically locate um, points on Earth. It worked much better on land. Sea navigation was still incredibly problematic. And Mark talked about that Chinese explorer. I was um, thinking um, when I started thinking about sea exploration about Polynesian sailors who before anything existed, right, navigated miraculously hundreds of miles between islands, um, you know, just using uh, the stars alone. Anyway, incredibly difficult. You don't have landmarks on the open ocean, right? So you don't have that kind of cue to help you. So sailors needed another way to accurately determine their location. And as I mentioned, they would calculate location using celestial bodies. Um, this allowed them to figure out their latitude relatively easily. I laugh when I say easily because like they could do it in their sleep. And I still, I, I feel like I want to go to take a sailing course just to like be forced to learn how to like, you have to measure the angle of the sun or another celestial body to the surface of the earth, then extrapolate from that. And it's just, it Using hurts. a sextant, I think, right? Yeah, correct. There, there used to just be a staff and then it upgraded to a sextant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All sorts of developments there, but okay. So relatively easily they could figure out latitude, but longitude was another problem, just a, a much thornier problem. So as far back as the 1300 uh, common era, Sailors and map, map makers were, you know, attempting to solve this navigation problem, and they used what are called rum lines. I don't know if any of your research talked about rum lines, Mark. R H U M B. I know. Really, don't make a pirate joke. I just totally gonna be like, why is the rum gone? Yeah. <laughs> so rum lines. So you have these parallels: our latitudes and our longitudes. And the rum lines are lines on the map that are diagonals. So the diagonal that will cross all the meridians at the same angle and using the same angle, it helps with um, navigation. But because of the Earth's curvature, these had to be constantly recalculated as the ship was in motion because the Earth is spinning and it's curved and the boat is moving. So your navigator would need to be just constantly calculating to provide accurate headings. If you ask me how I, I no I no I was being a language dork and I'm wondering if rhombus rhombus and rum lines because a rhombus is oh, square I, with like a diamond ends. yeah no I bet you're if right something actually. there is related but we'll see anyway. that's interesting well <laughs> I, I I will look that up because I, I hadn't even thought of that okay so they're using this but it it's ex it's exhausting and it's you know really hard and they screw it up all the time so this is a big problem so by 1569. Gerardus Mercator. Mark mentioned the Mercator system. I'm so glad you did this because yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah. Cool. I'm excited. <laughs> he was a he was a Flemish cartographer and, and geographer. And he created the first sailing map of the world. And he used straight longitude and latitude lines. So he took this grid developed by Eratosthenes. And then Ptolemy had updated by uh, making them curved. Well, he went, uh, oh, by the way, Aristotle's lines were, were irregular, right? They weren't evenly spaced. So they were irregular and straight. So it wasn't you know, as helpful, but he did understand you need a grid. Um, Ptolemy said, okay, let's curve these. Um, let's evenly space them. That's, that makes much more sense. And the Mercator says, I'm going to make these straight so there are consistent right angles, which helps with the calculations. And this meant a constant bearing was kind of easier to suss out. So within 50 years or so of Mercator developing this map, 
mathematicians had worked out the formulas required that sailors required to use Mercator's grid. And thus it's called actually Wright's Mercator grid became the standard for sea navigation. Great. They're starting to solve this problem. However, it's still incredibly like difficult, like near impossible, even for the best you know sailors. Why? Because latitude is fixed in nature. So I think, as I mentioned earlier, it can be pretty easily, haha, determined by measuring the angle of the sun to the Earth's surface at where you are, or at night, you could use the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere or the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. But longitude has no natural point of reference. Um, so first, you need a standard prime meridian prime longitude. And so in the early days, mapmakers, many used Ptolemy's original Canary Island reference, but other mapmakers just put it wherever they wanted. It was really a political thing. Jerusalem, St. Petersburg, Rome, like, hey, we're the center of the earth, put it here. Well, that's not a standard that, you know, uh, navigators and sailors worldwide can use. It actually wasn't until incredibly recently, and I think you mentioned this, Mark, it wasn't until 1884 that Greenwich in London was chosen as the standard prime meridian. It still stands to this day. It was voted for by 26 countries. Like, it, uh, you know, people finally figured out we have to have one. We're never going to solve this problem. So, okay, now they have a standard fixed prime meridian. Not that long ago, right? Like less than 200 years ago. It took a really long time. Still problems because to accurately measure longitude, you also need to know the time. And this is where my quote in the beginning came from, talking about the importance of time. So basically, you have a 24-hour rotation of the Earth, right? One Earth day, it takes our, our Earth 24 hours to rotate around its axis. And this equates to about 15 degrees of longitude you know, movement per hour, which is about one degree of longitude every four minutes. So to figure this out, you need to know the time on board your ship and the local time at your port of departure or another known place, for instance, the prime meridian. And the difference in these times is then proportional to the angular distance between the ship and the reference location. And you can, you can do the math. I can't tell you how to do the math, but you can do the math to then determine your longitude. So they had, humans had figured out, these are all the pieces of information we need. And if we had them, we could determine longitude. Problem, timepieces, clocks, watches, hourglasses couldn't be used at sea reliably. So changes in the magnetic pull of the earth as you travel because of the curvature of the earth, extremes of heat and cold, the violent motion, um, extremes of humidity, all of this conspired to affect the speed, believe it or not, of timepieces on journeys. So the best minds, the Best minds of the 19th century were stumped, 18th and 19th century when they're looking at this. Galileo, Mark's, you know, favorite, he actually proposed an astronomical solution to determining longitude based on the moons of Jupiter. There was also a proposal based on using lunar distance and then one based on variations in magnetic field, but none fully solved the problem, either because they didn't have all the pieces of the information. And like the they planets knew how to move solve in it. a weird spiral in our exactly. sky. Exactly. Like that would really fuck things up. And I think that's why Galileo Sit wanted down, to Galileo. What do you know? Do like the moons <laughs> and not kidding. the planet. But then what if the moons were back? See, yeah, yeah, again, yeah. as Mark said, no, this topic I, is trust, so rich. I'm that, still like, yeah. <laughs> shamefully not processing 
you mentioned, oh, latitude's so easy because you're looking up, but I'm still awash in like, yeah. you're looking up, but why is that only latitude? Longitude, I mean, I get lost in the angles of right. where we are on a sphere. And I'm like, why the hell would yeah. that not be either one of them or somewhere no, in between? And I don't know that I can give a good answer. If someone out there knows, please call and educate me because I cannot tell you how much reading I've done over the past two weeks. And I still, you know what I mean? Cannot, I'm picturing like, you're sitting, you're somewhere on a, on a golf ball, whatever. And you're looking up at one point in the distance. Yeah. That could be at any angle. You're not. Oh, right. So but I, yeah. I think because with latitude, because the earth is rotating, of course, I'm using my hands. Apologies to anyone not watching because the earth is rotating around its axis. The latitudes stay relatively fixed, but the longitudes are constantly moving in time and you're moving in time. Because and we're so, going around the sun at a tilt. And our earth is going around its axis right. and the ship's traveling. So you could just travel straight along a latitude. It's always going to be your latitude, but a longitude is changing not only with your movement, but with the movement of the earth because it rotates in the same direction. So, ouch, I know. <laughs> yeah, just, no, 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 I love this. So I'm going to stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so. So you said you need to know, and I, I still don't know why, but that's fine. We'll, I'll hack away at it for years. You need, if to be accurate, you need, you'll figure out using a sextant or something, your lat, your latitude for your longitude, you need to know the time where you are and the time of your destination or your reference point. Oh, your reference point. So it's usually your port of departure or or another kind of known okay. place. Um, but and not then three with, points, just two. No, well, with that difference, it's right. Okay. I mean, just someone curious. could call in and be like, no, you're absolutely wrong. <laughs> cool. So. No, I, and um, I, there's no reason for me to ask that other than the trilateral thing that I was thinking of. Right. But well, I think your saying, third point is your latitude, and then you know the angles of the sun, and you're tying it together. Yes, I, I think. Yeah. Sense, I think. Yeah, yeah. So then you know where you are, right? Cool. Um, no, again, I'm embarrassed that before when I was talking about sitting on a map, and I just said, "Picture you're on some grid." It's only now that I'm remembering. Oh, right, Mark. That some grid is the Latin longitude <laughs> degree system. I was using that as an example of like X and Y. Well, the X and Y, everybody, I was talking about is your latin lunch <laughs> it really is when all of us learn about this in social studies yeah, yeah. when we're younger in the u.s at least but they don't really explain it to be clear or they didn't in my public <laughs> no, high school or okay, middle school got it okay okay so so problem, problem, now problem. because i think you would need to know some of this stuff to like to do coding like stem stuff and coding for modern systems kind of need to know a lot of this well, that's a that's an interesting point okay so uh, astronomical solutions being proposed, but humans didn't have all the pieces of information they need. The time piece problem was huge. So the situation was so desperate that both Spain and Holland, uh, Spain in the 16th century common era and um, Holland in the 17th century, the governments offered cash prizes for a solution. The French government in 1666 actually established the Royal Academy of Sciences specifically to tackle this issue. It was like the issue the world wanted to solve. Why? Why was this the big issue with everything else going on in the world uh, You know, during, during the Renaissance? Well, for seafaring nations, much of their trade was reliant on ocean shipping. Uh, for some of these, naval military force and being able to right, wage their battles, Mark talked about. Uh, maps had some pretty nefarious purposes as well. But without accurate navigation methods, even the best navigators couldn't accurately figure it out. I mean, they'd, they'd get close, but close 
if you have a compilation of errors, could get you off by hundreds of miles, right? So they'd lose days or weeks or months, right, of time, which meant money, which we know drives drives a lot, right? Um, and uh, in fact, like whole ships were were also lost because you misnavigate and you run into a you know an island. The Earth and also isn't so. a perfect sphere, which I'm sure had to throw a wrench in the works somehow. Okay. Right? Yeah, but we're not even going to go there. Okay. <laughs> so, so you're losing money, and then you're also there's like a human life toll, uh, right? People are dying, and so here here's one prominent example of this. So it's called the Chauvel incident. It happened in 1707, and there was Admiral Cloudsley Chauvel, such a British name, and he had a fleet of English ships traveling north, five ships traveling north through the Atlantic Ocean from Gibraltar back to England, so towards the English Channel. And visibility was was awful, like really bad weather. So they couldn't. Um, they couldn't use the stars or the sun. Um, so the crew, the, the navigation navigator calculated their position using dead reckoning, now, dead reckoning. I feel like, Oh, I've heard that phrase my whole life and I don't know what it means. So what it means is the practice of using your past position or a past position to estimate your current position. You did this based on, you know, the speed you're traveling and you know the direction you're traveling because you either have a compass or, right, uh, ideally you have astronomical bodies, but you know they might not have. Um, and you know the length of time that you've been on a particular course, give or take, because as I said, timepieces at sea were notoriously, but you could get an estimate. Um, so dead reckoning wasn't the most reliable because like I said, those errors accumulated, but you could use it to kind of get quote unquote close. Well, Chauvel's navigators incorrectly estimated their position using dead reckoning by about 50 miles, like a lot, right? If you're out at sea. And because of this, four of those five ships crashed directly onto the rocks of the Scilly Islands. I'd never heard of these, S-C-I-L-L-Y, um, and sank, resulting in estimates vary, but probably the deaths of about 2,000 men. And the murder of Admiral Chauvel, I'm laughing not because of murder, but because I'm going to tell you, uh, he was murdered by a local woman after he washed ashore. He was actually still alive, unlike most of the others, when he washed ashore. And a local woman saw his emerald ring and murdered him to take it. She figured he was probably, she didn't admit this till she was on her deathbed, I think in her 80s. That's how they know. Uh, so I was just thinking, you know, karma, and I'll tell you why. Shout out to our payment episode when we talked about karma. He had just executed a crew member before this disaster. Why? Because a crew member dared to aver that the reckoning the navigators had done was wrong. And had he been keeping his own books, this was illegal. As a crew member, you were not allowed to do this. Like only the navigator, top secret information. This doesn't quite make sense to me. And I didn't do all the research because again, then I would have, right. We wouldn't be doing this episode because I'd still be reading. And it was considered mutiny literally for the, for a crew member to keep like a log of locations. Clearly this young man was just good at this and trying to learn where he said they were, they were. And because it was in the, the log that they recovered um, and it was considered mutiny and Chauvel executed him on the spot and continued on and shortly after died along with 2000 of his men. So karma. OK, so the Chauvel and, incident. And like yeah. gladly <laughs> a, a, an example of how well-functioning teams nowadays, the, the culture is. <sighs> 
sorry to bring very like a corporate modern sort of uh, organizational behavior type of uh, approach to it. But that's why the best managers, you are managing people that often know technically more than you in a lot of right. different ways. And you welcome that. You're not supposed to, you're a leader to bring the best out of a lot of different people. And as a group, you move forward in the best way to have this rigid, bizarre, it's, it's, it's pecking order. Uh, ridiculous and clearly doesn't serve you right <laughs> how, and I, how I mean, amazing would it have been to actually look at and welcome that thought while they're still alive they hit the rocks yeah exactly. yeah i mean honestly i think that rigid structure in the british military is part of the reason the british lost the revolutionary war in the states because mm -hmm. they were still fighting in like rigid formation for instance yeah, yeah. um and there was yeah. such a hierarchy okay so there you go this incident to this day is still one of the worst shipwrecks in british history and it was so bad at the time that it precipitated the passage of what is called the Longitude Act of 1714. So the British government offered the largest monetary Dare we prize cover some sexy yet. topics on this show. <laughs> <laughs> For a solution to the problem of longitude, they offered 20,000 pounds. That's millions of dollars in today's currency. I mean, that was like an insane amount of money. That is how bad this problem was. So at this point, Okay, everyone understands the relationship between time and longitude, as I mentioned, but they still can't solve it. Sir Isaac Newton, who was still alive at the time, couldn't figure it out. I mean, he had some astronomical yes. theories, but he couldn't figure it out. That's how, that's how hard it is. Okay, so along comes a man named John Harrison. He had to have a ship bonk him on the head, and then he would have been like, oh, okay. Wow. That was, that was like a stretch. That was, that was a stretch. Yeah, yeah. So along comes John Harrison. He was born in Yorkshire in 1693. He was a carpenter. His stepfather was a carpenter. Um, and in 1713, before he is even 20 years old, he completes building his first pendulum clock. He had no training in watchmaking or repair. There were no active clockmakers that even lived in his rural area at the time, according to you know records we have of occupations. Clocks and watches would have been financially out of his family's reach. So it is a complete mystery as to how this young man, obviously he just had, you know, an engineer's brain. It was the aliens. How he did this. It could have been. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about his journey. And anyone who knows the story is going to realize that I am leaving a lot out. And the reason I'm leaving a lot out is because we would be here for hours. So I'm going to give you the highlights and it's probably going to leave you with a lot of questions, but it will give you some inter interesting information as well. So we'll do this relatively quickly. So over those next two years, after he built his first clock, he built a couple more and they were extraordinary. So in one of them, he used wood. He used both oak for its strength and a type of hardwood called lignum vitae, which kind of self lubricates, like it creates an oil so that no lubrication was required. Um, Oils get like kludgy. I don't think that's an actual word, but at sea. So this matters later, right? For metals in one of those clocks, he only used brass, which solved the rust problem. So all these things that timepieces face, like he just bah, thought of and solved. By 1720-ish, he's he already has a reputation as like, hey, this kid makes amazing timepieces. In the second of those he did his first clock, then he did two more. And the second of those, he combined different metals. He took brass and then steel um, and he interlaced them. And he did this to negate 
the speeding up and slowing down of timepieces. So when temperature changed at the time, metals, of course, expand or contract based on heat or cold. And this would affect the working of the mechanism and your watch, your timepiece would slow down or speed up. This is ringing some bizarre bell from something I read a million years ago, right? Yeah, so they had to be fused together, right? So that they, yeah, yeah got it. Yep, they were like, and he did like an interlace, like a, a grid, hilariously, a grid. Grid seems to be the answer to everything. So known watches of the day, you know, Timepieces made by master clock makers drifted by up to a minute per day. His one second max. I mean, that is how, how, how brilliant he was. So by 1727, he has his eye on this longitude prize. Again, it's a mystery. There's no documentation on how he learned about it. He lived out, of the, out in the middle of nowhere in Yorkshire. I mean, sure, there were probably, right, town criers and newspapers, and there was a port like near enough that he, they probably got the news. But he, he kind of was like, I think I can do this. He'd already figured out the lubricant issue, the rust-free construction, a pendulum mechanism with two different metals that I talked about. You know, he still had to solve like salt corrosion, ocean, like violent ocean motion. Uh, but he thinks he's got it sorted. And so in 1730, he heads to London. He wants to pitch his design idea to the Longitude Committee. At this point, it is 16 years after the passage of the Longitude Act. Not one idea has been heard by a majority of the board. So many proposals have been made and they were all ridiculous. Like, honestly, I wish we had time. I would tell you some of them or just so incomplete that they weren't, you know, they weren't, they weren't valid. So he met with astronomer um, Edmund Haley of Haley's Comet fame. So at that time, Edmund Haley was the astronomer royal, right? He was a head astronomer in England. I don't know and I couldn't find how he got an audience with Haley. Haley was on the longitude board, but I don't know how he got in to see him. But Haley saw enough merit in the design that he referred Harrison to a renowned clockmaker named George Graham. And after one day of discussion, Graham became Harrison's patron. He looked at the design and said, you're a genius. I will be your patron. And over the next five years, Harrison worked on developing and he did create his first, what we call, what they called then a sea clock. And he nicknamed it H1, right? Harrison one. He had a trial run to Portugal. The act, there are all these stipulations in the act to win the money you had to, right? Do, 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 meet all these, these things. The act mandated that the piece had to run to the West Indies and back. So this little Portugal trial run ended up not counting, but the piece worked great. It only aired by a few seconds. It was really big. It was a very large piece. Uh, Harrison was a perfectionist. He wanted to improve it. So they're like, this is great. We should do a West Indies run. He said, you know what? Let me, let me make an H2 because I want to make it smaller and I want to make some improvements. So he makes H2, but this can't be tested because Britain was at war. So in the meantime, he comes up with H3. This is almost 20 years later. This man was an insane perfectionist. So it's been about 36 years since the passage of the law then. Since the, yeah. Oh. And things still have not been solved, right? So at the same time as he's working on this, Astronomers and scientists were trying to work out, I mentioned briefly earlier, the lunar distance method, which I'm not going to go into detail on because, again, we don't have time. Uh, but they thought this was much more sound. It was based on like principles of science, right, and physics and mathematics. They hated Harrison's ideas. And they felt like if Harrison's ideas worked, if you could use a timepiece, if there was a timepiece that could be trusted at sea, anyone could use it without being a man of science. And God forbid we create something that anyone can use without having to be like a brilliant, you know, physicist. 
just really, there was a lot of nastiness going on at the time and a lot of undercutting. Okay, so that's happening at the same time. He's getting a lot of resistance from them. He's trying to make this perfect thing. Um, and then uh, they do they do a run of H3. And again, it's like good, not perfect. And at the same time as well, there were other watchmaking improvements made by others. So a man named Thomas Mudge, who was Graham's protege and then successor, he kind of had ended up probably because the creation of uh, like improvements in steel, he was able to make some land time pieces that were much more accurate than previous ones. And so Harrison was thinking, okay, things have progressed so much. I can use some of this now, right? So a lot of just like updates going on, redesigns the concept. And in 1759, finally, 45 years after the passage of the Longitude Act, H4 goes on a run to the West Indies, meets all the requirements of the act. I mean, it is just absolutely what they need. But the Longitude Board calls for three mathematicians to corroborate the findings. Now, I guess that's fair enough, right? Because you have to calculate the longitude. Latitude, I'm still waiting for this dude to get screwed out of the reward somehow. Nah. So uh, they also claim that in one stop, which was Jamaica, he hadn't, or the crew hadn't accurately confirmed the longitude for Jamaica. I and mean, it was honestly, it seems very much like a ploy to just not, like you said, have to pay the prize money, get the technology. So the board finally says, fine, 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 fine. You can have like some of the prize if you hand over all the clocks, H1 through three at that point, I think, and teach us about the mechanisms and how everything works. And you have to create two more which is not a stipulation in the act, right? So they are just totally trying to get like, all this for nothing. Trying to picture what the patent law situation was at the time. <laughs> and there so was patent law because some of the other things, but yeah. So he yeah. he's not happy, but he finally, he finally just like, what am I going to do, right? So he finally tells all, gives them the clocks. Astronomers are still fighting him. In 1764, five years after that first H4 run, they do a second run, right? Okay, like let's, prove this once and for all more math checking follows final report accurate longitude readings within 10 miles this is three times more accurate than the act stipulated it needed to be it is astounding this 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 feat but during this trial run Haley had passed away and there was a new astronomer royal named neville masculine and he was just nasty he believed the only way to do this was with uh, lunar, the lunar distance method. He went through every kind of, you know, method to try to discredit Harrison. And he was asked by the board to go on that second trial run. So he is there monitoring this and to test his lunar distance system. Once again, the watch proves like incredibly accurate. Um, absolutely amazing beats all the projections um his lunar distance measures were also fairly good they weren't they weren't as good they weren't as accurate and they also required like considerable work and calculation unlike the timepiece and you plug it into an equation so at a meeting at the longitude board in 1765 the results are pre presented but they say you know what the accuracy of the measurements was probably just luck like, again, anyone not watching Mark's just rolling his eyes at how awful this was for Harrison. Um, so 
it gets the like escalated. Forty something years into this, it's just exactly. Mm-hmm. And while they've paid him some money, he's had to use that money for supplies and like to keep building. And he still continues to build, but they took all his former clocks, so he doesn't have like them for reference. It's a nightmare. So the the matter actually get, ends up reaching Parliament because they think Harrison does make a bit of a stink, and they're like, "Hey, you can have a ten thousand pound advance." Um, and then you can have the rest of the prize money once, you know, you again, like continue to do this, turn over all the designs, et cetera. Uh, okay. So let's see, I'm going to skip through some of this in the interest of time. So we know and that masculine is, is nasty. Point. He's pre- so 1765, he was born in 1693. So he's old. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, we know that Neil masculine is pretty nasty and he's the astronomer Royal, um, he comes back from Barbados from that second run, and he's actually placed on the board of longitude now. So now Harrison has no chance, right? He returns a report that the watch, you know, negatively speaking about the watch. Um, and he just, yeah, because he wanted the lunar distance method. So the first marine watch of Harrison's fails to meet the needs of the board, except it passed every trial. So... Harrison begins working on H5 while the board takes H4 and tries to do some tests on land. So Harrison obviously feels like he's being held hostage by the board. And after three years more, he's had enough. Finally, I can't believe he lasted that long. He felt, quote, extremely ill-used by the gentleman who I might have expected better treatment from. And he decides to go directly to King George III. I mean, when he's done, he's done, I guess. And he says, I'm going to go talk to King George. And he obtains an audience and the king tests the watch himself. And I think he tested, yeah. Did he eat it? I'm just kidding. Isn't this the crazy king? Isn't the third bit bit insane? Was it third? I thought so. Anyway, he is absolutely convinced. I don't remember. We'll Google it. So he tests it. And after 10 weeks of daily observations, he finds it to be accurate to within one third of one second per day. So the king is pissed. He's like, they need to get, yes, this, you are right. And so he tells Harrison, petition parliament for the full prize, right? And if I, I I will threaten them, like I will threaten to appear in person and like be nasty to them if they don't give this to you. So finally, in 1773, when he was 80 years old, Harrison received the rest of the monetary award. Remember, he's been getting bits of money, but unfortunately he had to spend most of it to keep developing out of his own pocket. But he gets, you know, the rest of the monetary award, uh, but he never, or he gets a further amount. He never received the official award, never awarded to anybody, by the way. And he only survived for just three more years after that. So then he worked himself to death. He solved one of the biggest problems. So in total, I think he received around the amount of the prize, but again, most of it, um, most of it was spent then trying to create the next level. Um, so the end of his life, at least he becomes the equivalent of a multimillionaire for the last, you know, few years. But bottom line, now he had a lot of help on those last versions because of some of those other clockmakers I mentioned. So there were all these other advances and he worked with them. Like Mark was talking about good leadership. He didn't say, I'm not, oh crap, you're doing really good stuff. I didn't think of, he's a great, come help me. And they did. Right. And so it's not on him alone, but it's mostly on him. Um, but finally, to right, this the difference day, between politics and uh, to like a scientific community, which is working on furthering knowledge, usually, right there, <laughs> yeah. yeah, business and politics different than like the scientific community being like band together to further the science. It's great. 
Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So to this day, the C clocks, which became known as chronometers, chronometers are standard issue on all ships. And that is because George Harrison, this little man who came out of nowhere, like did all this work to make it happen. And he was just kind of a quiet genius. He had this massive mental capability uh, without like a formal education. And so I just think it's a beautiful, it's a really frustrating story, right? It's like really like hooray for John Harrison and humans that that capability humans have to put their minds to like really, really large problems. And also like boo to the mean-spirited, greedy, egotistical board and government and astronomers. So you're saying they're still... That makes sense. They're still required, I'm assuming, because this is all analog stuff. So in case our, you know, digital systems and probably, uh, I'm assuming, I don't know anything about modern timepieces, but like atomic clocks, things are like insanely accurate now. If all of that gets blasted by, I don't know, an EMP or something. They have to have this. And I believe that like even navigators today need to understand like right to your point, like how to do this in case they needed to, like if the equipment went down. So the equivalent of terrain you know survival training it's right naval survival training with like oh that makes sense yeah yeah which is perfect so basically this tale and again i apologize there's so much left out so it might have been very confusing but hopefully they got the just across oh, but it's great it's kind of this tale of like trying to solve one of the thorniest scientific issues of you know history really shows us the best and the worst of human nature you got Harrison and his clockmakers working together on one side and Haley really supporting him, even though he's an astronomer. And then you have all the nasties really just trying to screw him at every turn. Uh, so that is it. That is my dive into the. Thank deep. you. No, that was fantastic. And, and literally the the background and the detail and the color you gave it, 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 it really feels like, I think I said this about one of your recent uh, rabbit holes actually um, really should be like a Netflix special, like this big, epic story of you know the things that are on the line are literally solving a massive right problem that is the foundation of so much of human progress and et cetera et cetera and interestingly you said that i did find on it was a bbc two-part tv oh, movie wow. from late 90s early 2000s i i haven't watched it i didn't have time but i am gonna watch it but it has jeremy irons playing uh no he's not playing he's playing a future like clockmaker who gets obsessed uh, with harrison and how he never kind of got his due you can now go see his clocks um at a um the horological museum in um london and you can also like go to his birthplace and all that but uh, i am gonna watch that so once upon a time somebody did it so there you go mark excellent well done very well done that's great all what right. is your well, big question? Yeah, I think in the interest of of time with our episode, let's uh, yeah, we'll go through our questions and and get our new noun for next time. So mine, I basically jotted down. I, I feel like I always get one, and then there's like three related questions right after it. So this is sort of a little bundle of questions. Do maps intrinsically reinforce difference rather than unity? Has the human act of delineating here from there, time and again, significantly contributed to human suffering by binding together the familiar and pitting it against the other or the unknown? Will there, right, am I making sense? So instead of just purely delineating, there is a tree there and there's a river here, it becomes a nation of, well, our 
tribe or our nation's boundary ends at the river. And then the people that are across the river become, because it's forced into a, a map understanding X hour section. Does that, you know what I mean? We're constantly building little boxes. And I realize that the, the basis of human understanding is usually in contrast. We need a, something to be an opposite of something else. It might just be how we understand things, but that's kind of where my philosophical question meandered. Uh, and then it ends with, will there ever come a time when humanity uses maps only to understand geography and not to define other nations? That brings up big questions around a one world order versus the moment that we may have contact with alien organizations and we are uh, communities and, and um, cultures that would suddenly bind the earth together in a way that would very much change the way we look at a map. It might change the way we right now view France versus the US. And then yes, of course we have maps for like the states and it gets down to our counties and everything else. But I feel like suddenly something that is another other like that would change the way we look at a global map. That's where I went. I love that. No, I, I was thinking the same thing. Actually, I didn't write it as my big question, but I was going to write something very similar. I, I have a hard time envisioning the day when maps are only used for good, to be honest. Unfortunately, I agree with you. You're never going to see humanity so united as when the aliens attack. Uh, if if the aliens it. attack. Right? Um, but I, one of the like roots haha, I considered going uh, with this was talking about the evil, not the evil of maps. The maps aren't inherently evil. It's the governments that are commissioning the maps and then trying to shift the borders. And I didn't want to do a downer. I wanted to do like the inspiration no. <laughs> of, of John Harrison instead. So I don't think we are going to get there, but I'm going to tack my question onto yours and then yeah, get yeah. your answer to both and have you talk more about yours because I think they're related because I was going in that direction. And also it's kind of two parts. It was something you mentioned earlier. So we're so reliant, as you said, on GPS these days instead of compasses or map reading. Forget longitude, latitude reckoning. <laughs> that That's way out the window. And um, because we all have the GPSs. So my question was, and you kind of talked about this earlier, should these skills still continue to be taught in public schools because there is a chance that people are going to need them? Or is it less important because GPS like gives us such a greater good? I think you briefly like sideswiped this earlier. Like, for instance, instead of just like maps so we can look at so we can figure out what to conquer next, there are people using maps for really good causes like crisis mapping. It's like when the earthquake hit Haiti, this guy, this random guy, like set up like a map, took in calls and Twitter things and started using a map that to the point where FEMA called him after two days and was like, can we use this to help people and to get aid? And it's been used in disaster after disaster now. And it's like a really beautiful use for a real time map where volunteers just come in to like plot the information, to take the information and to help translate. Um, so there you go. Just a big, wide question. Is the GPS giving us enough good or should we still be learning about the other stuff as well? I feel like it's so related to, we, we've talked a bit in some other episodes around if suddenly massive uh, nuclear warfare wipes out 
our ability to use computers, will we have access and will we, how much information and knowledge will we use? Will we really have if suddenly we are such a connected social web of surgeons know how to do surgery and the different um, it's like siloed approaches. People specialize in professions. We don't really have somebody that can do at all. So if, if we suddenly were reduced to very small communities rather than a nation that yeah. is connected through highways and information systems that we can talk instantly across platforms like Zoom that we're using right now to record this or whatever. I guess what I'm saying is if we were disconnected from each other and suddenly it was a small compound of 50 people and your survival relied on the knowledge base of those 50 people, right? And then those 50 people started to repopulate an area. Yeah, you're going to lose. It's not just location data. It's like so much, but it, I guess how we would solve it is similar. How do we maintain access to it or have at least a sample size of people in society know enough about it as a safety net? Or is that really being overprepared? Because couldn't we say that about everything throughout history? However, right. sorry to just right. go down there. <laughs> However, we've never been at a place where analog physical things necessarily would have completely disappeared. Wait, let me think about that. No, we, we have, because we've had things burn. Was it the library right. at Alexandria and things like that? Yeah. I don't know. So maybe it's just the same pattern cycle we need to figure out is how much at risk are we of being totally left up the creek without a paddle, right? Because <laughs> we were using a digital paddle and now we can't. Or just something like that. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's really hard. I guess that's why they're the big questions. Yeah. It, I get It's one of those questions probably where the answer is like both. Like, like right. GPS isn't just used for evil. It is used for good as well. Like for instance, crisis mapping. Uh, also, we should probably teach kids some basics. In fact, I was thinking maybe I need to take like, a, you know, or orienteering course to just yeah. be better. Yeah. It's funny at the same time, anyone who hasn't been following what, what Apple has been including in their, their um, iOS as they release new devices one of the major advancements uh, in, in personal safety and so on for hikers that really go out beyond where you would have um, towers and things like that is the satellite um, linking. I don't know if you know about uh, this, Allison. I don't know. So now there's an, it's called a SOS uh, capability on devices. If you're really, really out in rural areas and an emergency happens or something like that, and you don't have any bars or you don't have coverage, you can use the SOS and it will guide you to basically find and, and have to like, I don't know, I'm going to butcher the details, but point and align your device to a passing satellite until it links and sends an emergency beacon basically. So it's a fascinating way that therefore that's kind of like open. You, do, you don't need to have freight coverage. Yeah. It's not on what we're used to. You have no signal otherwise, but you're able to at least have a lifeline, a tether to That's literally amazing. a passing satellite. Yeah. Pad. Satellite. That is really, really cool. Um, all right, anyway, well, I, I feel like that's related that's just because it's right. It's uh, no, it is. It's another risk. good, it's another good thing. like tech fallback safety net. Yeah. Anyway, I love it. Um, all, right. all right. Well, I am, um, I, 
just, I'll put this in the notes and on the website, of course, but I read a book about Harrison, which is why it was so hard for me to like really squeeze it down. But uh, it's called Longitude, the true story of a lone genius who solved the greatest scientific problem of his time. And I highly, highly recommend it if you want to know more, because I know I left you with a lot of questions and probably a lot of uh, confusion. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have that in the notes for sure. So Mark, you want to revisit your rating? Yeah, I was just looking. So I had given this a seven when we got map. And I think I'm going to just drop a little bit to a six. All right. Mark is at a six. So I was at an eight and I, I'm actually going to drop to a 6.5. Oh, and okay. I, I'll tell you why it was, I learned so much. And Harrison was this amazing, amazing um, story. But this one was so hard because again, as Mark mentioned in the beginning, and I've repeated about a hundred times, it's such a rich area. You could go in about a hundred different directions at least. And I had a really hard time trying to like narrow it down. And then I had a really hard time trying to understand like the physics and the math. And so my brain hurt. So it was like interesting, but it was harder than some of the other ones. So I'm combining those two things and just dropping it to a 6.5. Excellent. All right. Well, should I give us our new word? Yes, please. Okay, everyone. <laughs> so for next episode, Allison and I will be researching the noun appendix. Oh, all right. <laughs> appendix. A-P-P-E-N-D-I-X. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I... I I don't know. Uh, Appendix. Okay. Uh, I am going to give it a a six. Okay. A six for you. I, I don't know. Like, yeah, we call this the the gut reaction. I I give it a three. I, Oh, wow. Wow. Really? I don't know. I just, I'm sort of like, I would have to be very surprised that if it's, you know, for me, it's probably, you know, it's always the slide that I make at the end of my PowerPoint presentation to throw the crap in that we don't maybe cover. Uh, maybe I'll find some something in the etymology, like sometimes, as I always do, to, to hook into. But I, I can't imagine this is going to be very interesting, but we'll see. We'll I see. feel like it maybe has some potential. All right. Well, do you want to read us out, Mark? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, so much. This has been another episode of the Renowned Podcast. So what we would love, if you could, on whatever platform you are listening to us on, give us a a follow and also a rating. We would love that that feedback. Uh, Good ratings for us also help us spread the word and build our audience. You can also find us on the web at renownedpodcast.com. Check out blog posts, some information, a little bit more of the work cited. If you want to geek out some more and read some of the the sources of information that Allison and I are pulling from. You can also please follow us on uh, Instagram at renowned podcast and we'd love to follow there we'd love some interaction you can you know post comment share some things uh, dm us whatever you'd like to do to engage with the show would be fantastic and so we thank you very much as always and uh, we will talk to you next time when we talk about appendix we'll see how that goes thanks everyone thank you bye-bye